Hello and welcome to the sixth episode of the European Lens. In today's podcast, we're looking at the issue of the EU with human rights. From my work in the European Parliament, I believe the issue of human rights is becoming more and more centre stage globally. There is an increased awareness of the need to ensure the implementation of human rights and fundamental values within EU member states and in our dealings with countries outside of the bloc. With the rise of authoritarianism around the globe, recent developments in China, Belarus and Poland, the question must be asked, with all of the progress made over the last century, are human rights actually in decline? I want to discuss the actual impact the EU can have on human rights, considering some of the abuses seen in certain EU member states. What leverage and influence can the EU exert in countries to ensure the advancement of human rights? And how does the EU approach these issues? Later on, I'll be joined by my colleague, MEP for Luxembourg, Isabel Wiesler-Liebe. But first, former Tonishtan Minister for Foreign Affairs, Eamon Gilmore, is a key voice in Europe in the area of human rights in his role as EU Special Representative for Human Rights. I'm delighted that he took the time to speak to us. And I began by asking him what his role entails. It mainly involves uh, political engagement with countries outside of the European Union. Uh, The role is a foreign policy role. It's about promoting the European Union's policies and values on human rights and democracy in the rest of the world. And in the two years or so since I took up this role, I have spoken with the governments of more than 40 countries. In some cases, it's been about general human rights policies. Sometimes it's about election monitoring. uh, And sometimes it's about individual cases. Some of those meetings have been in formal settings, like in human rights dialogues, and some of them literally have been uh, on Zoom calls, on uh, telephone calls with uh, individual ministers. I also represent the European Union in international fora uh, on human rights, and I've attended about and spoken at about, I think, about 130 uh, different international uh, events over the last two years. I also have a responsibility for compliance with international humanitarian law. So if you look at the various conflicts uh, around the world, last week, for example, I was talking with uh, ministers in Yemen and with the UN special envoy in Yemen about the very dire situation there. I've taken an interest, for example, in the horrific uh, developments in uh, Ethiopia and in Tigray. And I also more recently have been given responsibility a new action plan. The European Union has adopted a new action plan on human rights and democracy was agreed by the 27 member states last November. So I have been given a key role in that document to guide uh, its implementation over the next few years. Are human rights more centre stage now globally? You often get the impression that there is more and more talk about human rights or awareness. Oh, they are more centre stage uh, and they're more centre stage because there, there is a a battle going on right across the world uh, for these values. The idea that uh, human rights are universal and that they are indivisible and that they're interdependent is being challenged. It's being challenged by some countries who just don't see it that way. Uh, It's being challenged by countries who feel that the international community should not intervene at all where there's human rights violations in particular countries. And it's also being challenged by the rise in authoritarianism. We are seeing right across the world, a majority of the people of the world now live under autocratic regimes 
where civil society space is, is limited, where basic freedoms, freedom to speak. I mean, we're seeing examples of this. You look at what has been happening in Belarus over the last number of months and what has even happened in Belarus over the last few days. Uh, you look at the situations you have developing in Hong Kong, where the democratic freedoms that uh, people in Hong Kong thought they had retained after the British handover and the agreement with China, that's not being honoured. So no matter where you look in the world, we are seeing violations. And that's reflected, for example, in the consideration that the European Union is giving. If you look at the last uh, two or three meetings of the European Union Foreign Affairs Council, it's been dominated by human rights issues in different parts uh, of the world. So it is very much at the centre of the agenda because, frankly, a lot of bad things are happening. How do you account for this rise in authoritarianism? I mean, are you worried about the future of democracy around the world? I think democracy is uh, somewhat under strain. I think what we are seeing is, first of all, countries that were already authoritarian becoming uh, more assertive in their authoritarianism. But we're also seeing a growth of what I would call a, a form of elected authoritarianism or popular authoritarianism, where you have the idea of the, of the strong leader, the strong ruler. Um, and uh, of course, they, they remain strong and they remain in power because they, they crush the opposition and put the opposition in, in prison, close down uh, free press, make it harder for people to express opinions and to join civil society organizations uh, and to enjoy the freedoms uh, that uh, that we that we are familiar with. I saw a recent report uh, which showed that you know the kind of liberal democracy that that we enjoy and that we live in uh, in our country uh, is really now only applies to about 14% of the world's population. Now, there are variations on that. There are, of course, democracies that are not quite as liberal as, uh, as ours, but the, if you like, the high end of, of, um, of liberal democracy uh, now covers only about 14% of the world's population. What impact do you think the EU can have on global human rights, given that statistic in particular? Human rights is in the DNA of the, the European Union. Uh, it's in the treaties. It's a condition... Uh, for membership of the European Union to comply with uh, democracy, rule of law and, and human rights. Uh, and of course, it's very much a cornerstone of the European Union's foreign policy. The European Union uh, promotes these values consistently. We consistently support the United Nations uh, system and the multilateral way and the rules-based order to give effect uh, to these policies. But we do it in a way that that's not preaching, these are universal values. These are the values and the settlement, if you like, that was reached on human rights after the Second World War, uh, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. They're, they don't belong to any continent. They don't belong to any institution. They belong to people and they belong to people and individuals everywhere, no matter what part of the, the world that they, that they live in. The right to be free, the right, uh, you know, that if you're charged with something that you get a fair uh, trial, that you cannot be locked up uh, arbitrarily, uh, the right to your life so that uh, you're not uh, executed, the social and economic rights that people have. These are universal rights that belong to people uh, everywhere. The European Union is committed to them and it uses its power and its leverage and its influence in the world uh, to try and promote them. And we work in partnership with countries because, of course, we recognise fully that not everybody is starting from the same place. And we also remember the history uh, of our own continent. When I'm talking with people about, for example, the abolition of the death penalty. I remind them that I was a member of Doyle Aaron, and I think you were too, Francis, at the same time, 
when we abolished the death penalty in Ireland. It's not that awfully long ago. And, uh, you know, I think that we have to, when we're talking about human rights uh, outside of the European Union, I think we have to do so from, from a position of some humility and uh, from a position of experience and from a willingness to share that experience with other countries. Eamon, what levers do you have um, or, or do you have sanctions? How can you actually influence? I know there are a range of things that, uh, that we have. Uh, first of all, there's the network of EU delegations or embassies, if you want, uh, right throughout the world. And of course, working with the embassies of member states. So we use those. Um, we have human rights officers in pretty well all of these delegations. And there isn't a day that goes by that somewhere in the world, somebody is not observing a trial on behalf of the European Union or going into a justice ministry and uh, you know raising particular uh, cases. So we do it that way, the diplomatic and political political way. We, we use it also through our trade agreements and all of the various trade agreements that the European Union has with other countries that are standard human rights clauses. We have a system of trade preferences whereby some of the poorest countries in the world have tariff-free access to the European uh, market for everything but arms, but it's on condition that they ratify and that they comply with uh, human rights conventions, and we have a monitoring mechanism for that. And then more recently, we've sanctions. Now, we've always had sanctions for particular countries, and, but more recently, the European Union adopted a, what we call a global human rights sanctions regime, so that anywhere in the world where there are violations of, uh, of human rights, the Council can decide to impose sanctions on those who are responsible for it. And those sanctions include, you know, a ban on travel to the European Union, a ban on doing financial business, uh, transacting, you know, having, having bank accounts or transferring money from uh, their own country to any account in the, in the European Union. So they're quite severe. And the process of imposing those sanctions uh, has already begun uh, in a number of cases. Is it hard to get agreement uh, across the member states uh, to use those sanctions? This is a foreign policy area. And uh, as you know, on foreign policy, uh, it's one of the few areas now where unanimity is required. So it has to have the agreement of all of the 27 uh, member states. It's not always easy to secure that uh, agreement. Uh, but if you look back over the last uh, number of months, sanctions have been imposed uh, on those in Russia, for example, who were responsible for the arrest of Navalny. Uh, sanctions have been imposed on individuals and entities in China for the human rights violations of uh, the Uyghur population. Sanctions have been imposed on individuals and entities in Myanmar arising from the military coup there. there we're onto our fourth round of sanctions now in, in, uh, in Belarus. So it is being used and it is securing the agreement of all of the 27 member states in those cases. It's sounding much more active maybe than it was before, Eamon. I want to ask you about business and industry. There's more and more discussion about due diligence, about the role of business and industry, about supply chains, human rights and so on. Are you seeing significant changes in the attitude of business and industry to human rights or greater awareness? Oh, very much so. The new action plan on human rights and democracy that we adopted has uh, for the first time, uh, provisions within it on, on business and human rights. The United Nations has already adopted guiding principles. Uh, 15 of the EU member states have adopted uh, national plans to give effect uh, to that. Uh, and I am seeing an increased interest on the part of the private sector uh, to work with the European Union on business and human rights, because they recognise that uh, their consumers are very sensitive these days. 
know, you look at the blouse on a, on a rack, and if you think it's been made by forced labor or by child labor in, in some cases, or in a country where there's very serious uh, human rights uh, abuses, you're not going to buy it. Uh, so the consumer is very conscious, I think, increasingly conscious of where goods are coming from, of the supply chain. Uh, and I think businesses, you know, again, as part of their corporate social responsibility, uh, are becoming more aware of that. I've met uh, on a number of occasions, there's an alliance called the Responsible Business Alliance, which represents about 400 uh, major international uh, companies who, who themselves want to provide leadership in this area. And as you know, Commissioner Reinders is working on due diligence legislation, which it's hoped will be, will be introduced, uh, which will put obligations on businesses uh, to look at their supply chain and to look at the, the possibility of abuses of human rights. And I think that that is going to be an increasing part of our armory. And I think in the European Union in particular, because of the size of what we're still the biggest market in the world, uh, 500 million people, um, biggest consumer market, I, I think that is going to be an increasing part of what we're doing. I, I For example, I had a call this morning from um, one of our ambassadors. I won't mention the particular country, but it was in a country where, you know, which enjoys um, trade preferences. And she was able to report that, you know, there, there was somebody on death row who has now been reprieved. Uh, and she believes that it is, you know, that, that the influence of the European Union and in particular, the, um, if, you, if you like, the power of our market is, is very important in persuading countries sometimes to, uh, to see the value of, of what we're promoting. Does that mean that uh, the human rights agenda, if you like, will be more central to European Union trade deals from now on? Well, it already is. And I think this is something that, you know, sometimes people forget. It's, it's a standard provision in trade agreements, irrespective of where the, where the country is, that compliance with, uh, with human rights. And there are provisions in those uh, agreements for the monitoring uh, of, those, um, uh, of, of those clauses. So it already, it already is part of our trade agreements. But I think uh, the, the monitoring and uh, the, the, the use of it, I think, I think there's a greater awareness of it. Th there is a debate. I mean, it sometimes comes up, we shouldn't, you know, you know we shouldn't, um, you know, enter into a trade agreement with a country unless they, you know, the human rights record is as we would want it to be. I, I find actually that having the trade agreement is actually of, of better value. You have leverage once you have the trade agreement. You don't have leverage un until you have the agreement in place. We'll come back to Eamon Gilmour later in the podcast. For now, though, I want to turn to my friend from the European Parliament, Isabel Wiesler-Lima, MEP for Luxembourg. Isabel is the EPP coordinator on the Subcommittee on Human Rights. I first asked Isabel to tell me about her work on the subcommittee. The, the subcommittee is really trying to alert everywhere where we see that um, there are problems with human rights. We can't do it clearly for every place because there are around the world so many breaches around human rights that you can't do everything. But we, we pick up subjects and we, um, we try to go through the different continents and to also um, make uh, resolutions and, uh, and show what is going, going wrong. It's important to alert about what uh, what doesn't what doesn't function when when you have uh, people in jail that shouldn't be in jail when you the human rights defenders 
are being persecuted. There are so many things going on and uh, we try to uh, to highlight them. And Isabel, how do you see the EU's role on global human rights issues? Like what impact can the EU have on global human rights issues such as you describe there? So I think that it's very important by voicing it to alert. When you do that, you support the people who who are active in the humans in the human rights, and you also uh, don't allow that the authorities what they are doing wrong that they maintain that hidden. I uh, we had a lot around the Uyghurs in China and what's going on there in the in the province of Xinjiang. I think this is very, very important. You see also that this has a real impact because the Chinese authorities don't want that this is um, that this is voiced. Um, that perhaps you heard about the fact that uh, um, we also had um, pronounced san- sanctions at the European Union, uh, and they uh, they sanctions back. Is it difficult to get agreement across the member states, Isabel, to get unified action? In the subcommittee, yes, sometimes you feel differences, but it's not so much the differences from one country to the other. There are more like um, some groups are more focused on what is going on in, in South America. Other groups are more focused on what is going on in, in Asia. You have also that some countries, you know, there is, a, there is a, a regime that is more on the left or more on the right, and there are sensitivities. But normally, when it comes to human rights, Europe is is mostly united and i think that's uh, that's important that we do it like uh, that we do it like that it shouldn't be about who are the regimes uh, i'm more at ease with or not it's about human rights but i must say that mostly at in the european parliament we manage to do that and isabel how do issues get onto the foreign affairs committee and onto their agenda. Do you find that the Foreign Affairs Committee as a whole is very interested in uh, global human rights issues or is it left to the subcommittee? The subcommittee works very independently. So it's really the the coordinators of the different groups that come together. We decide on uh, on what other subjects we we want to to have on on the agenda. And... Uh, c- clearly, we we talk with all the members of the of the um, of the subcommittee from from our group, and we see what is uh, what they want us to um, to highlight, and then we have these meetings of the of all the coordinators with the chair, uh, and and we decide for the agenda for for the next uh, for the next month. But you know, Francis, we have uh, for every plenary we have those urgencies where we really look what is going on right now, what is urgent, what is the situation of some persons or something that happened right this week or the week before, and these urgencies, this these are decided by the 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 Commission of the Foreign Affairs. That's our main commission. <laughs> 
And what are the issues currently in focus? Are there standout human rights issues as far as you're concerned at present? Yes, what is really has been on the on the agenda really now since months, that's China, clearly China, Belarus. And we have now also since uh, really many weeks, Russia, because of um, Navalny's case. And that's really, th- those three countries are really always again on, on the agenda. What we also have, there are subjects we, we have very often also on the agenda of the human rights about um, reporters, uh, journalists in jail, very often uh, LGBTIQ people who are, who are persecuted. Um, we have women's rights. That's really your subject, uh, Francis. You are the main person, I would say, in the, in the European Parliament defending the, the, the women's rights. And um, there are really countries where women are treated like they were not persons. So that's my opinion. Um, when I when I say that, but we, if you if you look what happens, I think what I said is not too strong. It certainly isn't. I mean, do you believe that China has closed down on human rights in recent times? Are you, are you disappointed to see that? We know that China doesn't cope with uh, that isn't uh, correct what when it comes to to human rights, and I must also say we know that when you voice something and when we ask something, this will not change. What, uh, what China is doing. We know it. But as I said before, it is really important to voice and to, with our voice to say, we know. And you know that we know. And the people in China know that we know. The people who are suffering and the people who are defending them. And this is very, very important. It's one way of, of acting. And what I always say also, it is that when it comes to forced labor, because it's really one of the points we are we are working on, um, because in China, the Uyghurs, we know that there is forced labor. When What we can do is look that our legislation has this obligation of, of the due diligence. Yes. And if we do that, and if we do that with this with our Western world, if we are strong and if we put legislation that doesn't allow products from forced labor to come into the European Union, to come to the US, China will have to change. That's not because we ask. That's because they are in, uh, confronted with a situation where if they want their products to go out of China, they have to respect this. So I think that's really one way to do it. Have you seen that working from an EU point of view? I mean, what have you seen working in terms of dealing with human rights issues? Exactly what I just uh, talked now about for China, we have seen this in Vietnam. The things are not perfect. Oh, no, (laughs) really not. But they have changed their rules. And forced labor is um, not anymore legal. They have changed their legislation. They have have signed the the VTO um, conventions about forced labor. That was the European Union with the 
contract they they made with them for for um, for trade and for investment, where we asked that this has to be done so that we give our agreement to this treat uh, to this uh, uh, trade agreement, and uh, that worked. I don't say that the situation is it's perfect. You know, there is always the implementation uh, and the control that is really difficult to do. Nevertheless, things have a little changed. Do you think that we will use trade agreements more and more to, you know, exert pressure on countries where human rights are not being respected? I think that we have to put some barriers very clearly like with this this um, trade agreement uh, with uh, with china that is really a lot uh, talked about investment agreement um i think we can't go and and agree at the european parliament with this uh, with this um, um, trade agreement if we don't have the guarantee of the signed forced labor that I think it's really, really important. Now, how we'll be able to to control this? This will be very difficult. You know that we had have a pandemic. Nearly three million per person uh, will have died from this pandemic, and it was only more than a year year after the beginning of the pandemic that China let come in experts from the from the WHO. So. It's always difficult afterwards to um, to be able to uh, to to see if the things are really implemented. But again, we have this tool of our own legislation where we can make barriers to what comes into our countries. Isabella, final question: What about human rights within the EU? I mean, are you looking at those? countries in Europe that people believe are infringing human rights. Is that part of your job in the Subcommittee on Human Rights? I very much like your question, Francis, because I always think also when we when we ask other countries to do some things, we have to be able to look ourselves to, uh, to at ourselves and to have our conscience clear. It's not uh, the, um, it's not um, part of the, um, the the agenda of the subcommittee on human rights. The subcommittee on human rights is a subcommittee from the 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 committee of foreign affairs. So we don't do that in this committee. But we have the Libic committee about uh, internal politics, about uh, justice, and about fundamental liberties. I'm also a member of that committee, and there it's exactly what we do. We look how the countries in Europe are managing the fundamental rights and the human rights. And no, there is not everything okay. And I, Francis, you would be very at ease, I suppose, to speak about women's rights when it comes to Poland very re recently. It's not like it should be. And we try to really also voice this in the Libby Committee and to, uh, to look 
that we have legislation in the European Union that makes this impossible. But we have work to do and it's, we can never um, think uh, it is granted because it is not. It's really, um, yes, a fight, an everyday fight. Back to Eamon Gilmore now to continue the discussion on human rights in China. People are getting more and more concerned about abuses of these rights, particularly in relation to the Uyghurs. I asked Eamon for his view on how the relationship is going to be managed and developed in the future. Well, the relationship with China for the European Union is very important because China is a big country, a growing economy. Uh, we have lots of things with which we have to talk to China about, including issues relating to security, climate change, uh, energy, uh, trade, and so on. But we also have to be clear that we differ on, on human rights and our understanding uh, of, of human rights. And we have very serious concerns about what is happening in, in China. Uh, the Uyghur situation, what is happening in Hong Kong, the denial of freedoms uh, in, in, in China, these are all, these are all big issues. Uh, what we want to see with China is, is a, it's a genuine dialogue with China on, on these questions. Um, unfortunately, uh, China has recently decided to discontinue the human rights dialogue uh, that it used to have with the European Union. Uh, the last one we held here in Brussels, uh, which, um, um, which I gave um, an, an opening statement um, uh, on behalf of the, the, the European Union. Uh, we were to have another one in 2020, but it was postponed because of COVID. Uh, and now following the uh, imposition of sanctions uh, arising from the Uyghur situation, uh, China has decided to, to discontinue the, the human rights dialogue. I hope that they will reconsider that. I also hope that they will engage in discussion with us uh, at a more senior political level uh, on, on human rights issues. Human rights is always going to be part of the discussion that the European Union has with any country. Uh, we don't apologize for the values that, that we espouse uh, and we promote. It can be difficult sometimes uh, to have these discussions and some countries are very, very sensitive uh, about it. But I think the, the message is out there and has to be out there that uh, when you're talking with the European Union, doing business with the European Union, uh, having trade agreements and uh, agreements on, on energy and so on, human rights is going to be part of the conversation. And China reacted uh, I think over the top uh, to the uh, sanctions that were imposed uh, arising from the Uyghur situation. They imposed counter sanctions on the Human Rights Committee of the European Parliament, on several parliamentarians in uh, national parliaments, on some civil society organizations, uh, on the Political and Security uh, Committee of the European Council uh, itself. Uh, I, I, no, I hope that they will reconsider that and that they will sit down with us and have um, a serious dialogue with us uh, on the human rights issues where we can talk about the concerns that we have and try and at least understand each other. Do they care about this sort of breakdown in, in the discussion on human rights? Or are they prepared to go it alone, do you think? I think they do understand that they live, you know, the, the world has become a smaller place. I mean, you look at the, the, COVID, the COVID pandemic, we're all interdependent on each other. You know, these are not European values. These are universal values. Uh, these universal values that have been adopted by the, uh, by the United Nations. And China is a permanent member of the Security Council of the United Nations uh, and is now a member also of the Human Rights Council uh, of, the, of the United Nations. So these are 
values and uh, positions and understandings and conventions uh, that it falls to every country uh, to uh, implement and to to honor uh, no matter no matter where that country is or no matter what its uh, political system it must feel very difficult sometimes does it Eamon, when countries appear to be so far away from those universal values as you describe them well, it, it is but i mean that's the you know that's the challenge and uh, that's part of the work that that i have to do on behalf of the european union is to is to engage uh, politically uh, with countries sometimes uh, that uh, really don't want to engage with us at all or are uncomfortable uh, with, with with the issue and um, that's uh, that's part of the work that I do. Just recently we've seen this very dramatic situation where we had a uh an airplane forced down to land in, in Belarus and uh, an activist taken off the plane. What's your sense of that episode? What an extraordinary uh, action to take, uh, uncaring really about what the, how the rest of the world views it. Well, it's part of a pattern that we've seen from in uh, Belarus and from Lukashenko since the, you know, the, the, uh, the election, the, the flawed election that uh, took place in, uh, in August. Uh, when he claimed he had got uh, 80% uh, of, of the vote in the election, despite all of the uh, evidence from those uh, who, were, who were monitoring it. It's part of a pattern of repression that he has imposed on those who have been pro protesting. Hundreds of people uh, arrested, uh, really brutal repression by the, the state um, apparatus. I mean, this is, uh, in a way, uh, you know, a, an episode that, it, that is hard to credit. Uh, that uh, a civilian aircraft, a flight by a company, which is a European Union company, flying between the capitals of two European Union member states, Greece uh, and, uh, and Lithuania. And while it's over the airspace of Belarus, uh, their uh, air force goes up and, and forces it uh, to land. Uh, and then they arrest uh, a blogger uh, and, and another uh, activist who was who was accompanying him and my concern these days is for their well-being and for the well-being of the other uh, activists and protesters that have been arrested uh, in what has now become a very brutal uh, repressive regime and I'm glad that the European Council responded uh, so quickly by addressing the the, the issue uh, and by uh, making decisions in relation to uh, the banning of uh, the, the Belarusian uh, airline from um, uh, European airports and also uh, the the issue over the um, Belarus airspace uh, itself, but the issue in Belarus th this is not going to this is not going to go away. Um, this is um, uh, I mean I've spoken with uh, uh, Svetlana Chikanovskaya uh, and I've spoken with uh, civil society uh, representatives from Belarus and indeed I'm scheduled to. Uh, to talk to our own head of delegation in Minsk in the next uh, couple of days to to look at what we can do uh, by way of, of follow-up and to to work to support civil society uh, in that country and to try and get I mean the two people who were arrested off that plane must be released I mean that is uh, the immediate demand and you know also uh, the, the many other people who have been arrested over the past uh, several months the situation in Belarus is, is very is, is very serious and it's one that we're giving uh, a lot of attention to at the moment. I mean, these authoritarian leaders appear to act with such arrogance and disregard 
uh, for the global view or certainly for human rights. It it must make you feel sometimes that the job is is just almost overwhelming. I, I'm sure you, you get on with what you can do, but there is such a lot of work to do in this area. There is, but I, I, I'm also quite, um, quite optimistic. I mean, first of all, we're talking about the authoritarian leaders or we talk about people who are who are violating human rights or violating international humanitarian law, accountability will catch up with them. I mean, we have seen, for example, in Sudan, um, uh, the, the, the leader there, Bashir, didn't, didn't expect to, to be arrested, thought he could carry on forever. Uh, he's now facing charges in the International uh, Criminal Court. We saw it in the Balkans. I mean, even, even 20 years later, uh, some of the people who were responsible for the atrocities in the Balkans are being, are being brought to justice. And these days, with new technology, with the ability of people to be able to record what has happened uh, in real time and to be able to, to transmit that and to be able to assemble um, uh, evidence, it is becoming harder for human rights violations to be hidden and ultimately for the people responsible to escape uh, accountability. And that accountability might be through courts of law in their own country eventually, it might be through the International Criminal Court, or it might be uh, through the European Union imposing sanctions on those who are responsible uh, where we have the evidence to do that. Imid, you were a leader in terms of social change and social movements uh, in Ireland. Uh, I can't let you go without asking you to reflect uh, on your, your time in government at a very difficult time in Ireland. What sort of reflections uh, do you have on that period now? Very positive, actually. First of all, it's the greatest honour in a democracy uh, to be elected to your national parliament, to be able to uh, serve in government, to be able to serve your people and to do what you can to try and improve situations. And, you know, when I look at the, the period of time that I've been involved in actively in, in, in Irish politics from the 1980s, right, uh, through uh, I left Leinster House in 2016. What a transformation has taken place in our country. The changes in social legislation, what, what used to be called the liberal agenda, you know, availability of contraception, divorce, uh, the abortion issue, which of course was a huge issue. Um, I remember, uh, I was also, I think you were as well, the part of the, the legislature uh, that decriminalized homosexuality and then of course eventually we came to the point where Ireland became the first country in the world to approve uh, same-sex marriage by, by popular vote so an enormous uh, transformation and it was uh, a great privilege to be, to be to be part of that but also to see the economic transformation uh, I mean the country that I grew up in uh, was you know the poor relation uh, of Europe it was a much poorer poorer country um, we still have a lot of economic and social problems that have to be addressed, not least the, 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 the housing issue, which I know is very, uh, very prominent at the moment. But it also has to be acknowledged that the, the country has made great strides forward in terms of uh, economic uh, development. So, you know, it, it's a great privilege to, to, be, uh, to, be, to be part of that. Um, but I think, you know, I think the big lesson in, 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 in politics is... You can never rest. There's always something new to be done. There are new challenges to be uh, to be met, and um, you know it's it's important I think to be aware of those. Thanks to both of my guests for joining me on this episode. It is clearly evident that there is a huge amount of work to be done within the EU and globally in relation to the advancement of human rights. It's up to citizens and legislators to highlight breaches of human rights and take action where we can. But sometimes the issue is not clear-cut. 
we cannot simply disengage and seize communication where there is a violation of human rights. We must engage with governments, citizens and NGOs to bring about positive change and ensure the implementation of our shared universal values. No doubt a monumental challenge. We'll be back soon with another episode of The European Lens. Until then, thanks for listening and take care.